Our reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 24 and in the Pew Bibles it's page 327 and you'll just have to bear with me with some of these names. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that they may know how many so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enrol the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroah, south of the town in the, in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tartim Hodchi and on to Dan Ja'an and, and around towards Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites, Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken, and he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan and Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. When David said, saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So we've come to the end of our journey into Samuel. It's been an interesting journey, hasn't it? We've seen many ups and downs, the rise and fall of both Saul and David. Let me emphasize again, the main human character in the story has been David. 
At the beginning of the books of Samuel, Hannah praised the Lord for the way he is in control. She sang, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Throughout the books of Samuel, we have seen what it has been all about. What Hannah sung about. Death, raising up, humbling and exalting. The one constant is that the Lord is in control. Today we see the epilogue of 2 Samuel, the last word. Chapters 21 to 24 is a mix of history, poetry, prophetic words and lists arranged thematically, not chronologically, to remind us what the books of Samuel have all been about. The Lord is in control. People rise and fall. The Lord judges and the Lord is merciful. In chapter 24 especially, we see what it's all been about. We see Israel and David's sin. The Lord judges because he's in control and the Lord is merciful. Let's pray as we consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. As we read it today, please help us to understand it. Help us to see how King David's story points us to the story of King Jesus. May we hear and obey your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have your Bible open as we work through the story. There's an outline in your notice sheet as well. As the sections in chapters 21 to 24 are so different in genre, we're only going to be covering chapter 24 today. We're going to see three scenes in this chapter. In undertaking a census in our first scene, we see David trying to measure his greatness. The Lord reminds David who is really responsible for his greatness in our second scene, David's weakness exposed. And in the third scene, we see the sovereign Lord reigning over the shepherd king. As the story involves some complex theological issues, such as divine judgment and the nature of good and evil in the world, I'll try and give as much an answer that is possible, that is relevant to our passage. Scene one, David measures his greatness. In verses one to nine, we see the Lord's anger and David's action. Verse one contains the most troubling information in the whole passage. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them. We don't know why the Lord is angry here or what Israel did to make the Lord angry. With only these words, we might be tempted to see the Lord God as a raging tyrant. But the context of the whole Bible shows us that this is not true. The book of Genesis, for example, tells us how God lovingly created humans to be his people, but also how they rebelled against God. And God punished this sin through curse and banishment from his presence. But the Lord God never stopped loving his creations. God never stopped trying to make a way back for he and his people to be together again. Most of the Old Testament is this back and forth between God and his people. God blesses his people. They serve him for a while but then they disobey and the Lord judges them, but then relents and restores them to relationship. 
We see this in judgment and salvation in Noah's flood and the rainbow. We see salvation in God saving his people from Egypt, but then sin in the golden calf. We see salvation in God giving his people the promised land, but then their sin in not completing their conquest of the promised land. And more recently in the books of Samuel, the people of Israel rebelled against the Lord by asking for a human king to replace the Lord as king. We don't know why the Lord is angry here in 2 Samuel chapter 24, but we shouldn't be surprised while remembering this in context. God's people have often rebelled against him, but this story doesn't tell us which time. More importantly, knowing the cycle of judgment and salvation, we should expect to see the Lord's mercy at some stage in the story, but more on that later. The Lord's anger against human sin can be difficult to accept. But knowing that the Lord incited David against his people is even more troubling. So what does it mean that God incited David? It gets even more confusing when you look at the book of Chronicles, where the same incident is recorded, which says that Satan rose up and incited David. So does it mean that Satan incited David to do this? Later on in the story, David takes responsibility for his sin. He owns it. So who's responsible for David's action here? Is it God? Is it Satan? Is it David? All of them are actually true. God is in control of everything, so God did incite David. Satan is also at work, but like a dog on a leash, only going where its owner lets it. So Satan did incite David. And David, like any human, has free will to choose his actions. So David was responsible. God uses Satan to tempt David to act. And it's not like this is an isolated incident. In the Old Testament book of Job... God permits Satan to bring about pain in Job's life so that Job will see the pattern of God's grace and praise God. What we see in 2 Samuel 24 isn't as complex as what we might have thought. God is working his purposes in David's life. God uses Satan to tempt David to act. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that David's action is to take a census of Israel and Judah, of all the fighting men. The counting of your people is not necessarily sinful. Moses had counted God's people in the book of Exodus. But in the ancient world, a census was an exercise in self-glory, an ancient way to measure your greatness. It seems like that might be what's going on for David He wants to show how great he is by counting his army. So David sends General Joab and his army commanders off in verse 4. As King David has the power to send people to count his troops. Joab and the commanders travel through all of Israel in verses 5 to 8, from top to bottom. And they enroll the fighting men. After nine months, Joab returns with the report in verse 9. 800,000 able men in Israel, 
and 500,000 in Judah. That's 1.3 million potential soldiers. In other words, David's army is huge. It's great. David's been blessed by God. He's not lacking. So why did David feel a need to count his soldiers? We don't know exactly when this story happened during David's reign, but it's probably near the end. The once strong David who killed Goliath is now old, grown weak. He's trying to measure his greatness by how many men he can enlist in his army. And David is a great human leader. He measures his greatness by the million soldiers he has at his disposal. But David's forgotten who made him great in the first place, who's really in control. Scene two, David's weakness exposed. In verses 10 to 15, we see David's repentance, his indecision and his faith and the Lord's judgment. In verse 10, David realises what he's done and he repents. David says in verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. In the past, David needed a prophet to come and rebuke him for his sin, like Nathan did after David's violation of Bathsheba. But here, David realises his own sin. He is conscience-stricken. David has grown in his self-awareness. And that leads David to repent of his sin to the Lord. In the past, David tried to cover up his sin of adultery through deceitfulness and eventually the murder of Uriah. But here, David says sorry. He takes responsibility for what he's done wrong. By God's grace, David is growing. Even through his sin, David has grown as God's king. The Lord is in control here. He is permitting this pain so that David can see the pattern of his grace. In our first scene, David tried to show how great a leader he was by measuring his greatness. David had the power to count all the people. But now David's sense of greatness as a leader is exposed as weakness. The Lord God gives David three options of punishment via the prophet Gad. See them in verse 13. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three years of plague in your land? There's three options. Three years of famine, three months of being on the run, or three days of plague. Usually God does not give humanity a choice in their punishment. But as a contrast to David leading the people in being counted, God is giving David a chance to lead the people in bearing his judgment. David had power to count all the people, but he doesn't have the power to bear God's wrath. David crumbles at this choice. Who is he to decide judgment for his people? David's response shows both indecision and faith. Verse 14, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, 
for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. David doesn't actually choose one of the options. He's only clear in refusing the second option. Three months of fleeing from his enemies, that is, human hands. David probably remembers all the time he spent on the run from Saul in 1 Samuel. And then all the time spent on the run from Absalom that we saw last week. And so David refuses that option to secure his own comfort. But David's response also indicates great faith in the Lord's sovereignty. David knows that the best place to be is in the hands of the Lord, even in the Lord's anger and judgment, because David knows that the Lord has been merciful to him once before. The Lord God ends up choosing for David and sends a plague on the people of Israel in verse 15. This is the third option. The shortest, only three days, but the deadliest plague. 70,000 people die from all corners of the country. It's terrible, isn't it? The loss of human life, especially so many, is always terrible. But remember how this story began with Israel under God's anger? Israel and David have sinned. The people are paying the cost, not for David's sin, but for their own sin. Because the Lord is in control, he needs to bring judgment. In this second scene, we've seen David's weakness exposed. He's not as great as he thought himself to be. He doesn't have as much power as he thought he did. David humbled himself before the Lord in repentance, and the Lord humbled David with a choice in judgment. David was not in control, but the Lord was in control, and his judgment was terrible. Remember, this is what 2 Samuel has been about. The Lord is in control. People rise and fall. The Lord judges. And so we come to scene three, sovereign God over shepherd king. In the last chunk of this chapter, verses 16 to 25, we see the Lord relenting and David as the shepherd king offering, paying and sacrificing. The Lord sent a plague upon the people of Israel, but now he relents in his mercy. Verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. Before the plague reaches Jerusalem, the city of God's king, the Lord says that there has been enough. The Lord cuts his judgment short. Like David said, the Lord's mercy is great. The plague had been deadly. 70,000 people died. But the deadly plague was not as deadly as it could have been. David's census had counted 1.3 million able-bodied men, not including women and children. The Lord's plague had claimed 70,000 people, which is just over 5% of what the census counted. God's judgment was terrible, 
But it could have been much more terrible. The Lord relented in mercy. So the Lord has relented concerning the disaster, but now we read David's reaction to seeing the plague. In verse 17, David offers his life to try and stop the plague. See what he says, verse 17. I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. David was once a shepherd boy, but now while king, he identifies himself as a shepherd once again. He offers to lay down his life for his people, for his sheep. David takes responsibility. God doesn't accept David's life as sacrifice, but David still pays a cost. See, the angel of destruction had stopped at the threshing floor owned by Arona the Jebusites near Jerusalem. At this place, God instructs David to build an altar. Arona offers his land to David for free, but David can't have that. David, as the shepherd king, must pay a cost. Verse 24, see what it says. But the king replied to Arona, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David, as the shepherd king, pays a cost. David builds an altar there and sacrifices burnt offerings to the Lord in verse 25. The atonement for sin requires sacrifice, and so David offers one. David, as the shepherd king, sacrifices to the Lord. Here we glimpse the very best of David, a king who shepherds his people, offering to lay down his life, paying a cost, and sacrificing for sin. Finally, in this scene, we see the Lord abstain from further judgment. Verse 25, then the Lord answered his, David's prayer, in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. We already read before that the Lord had stopped the plague, but this sentence helps to finish off the story and the whole book. The Lord abstains from further judgment. In this scene, again, we've seen what Samuel, to Samuel has all been about. The Lord is the sovereign God who is in control. David fell, but rose as the shepherd king, and the Lord brought judgment. But then the Lord relented and abstained from his judgment because of his mercy. The stopping of the judgment was not because of David's actions, but because of the Lord's character of mercy. And we've seen God's purposes working in David David is humbled only to be exalted. King David here points to the perfect king, Jesus. As a shepherd king, David points to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. While King David offered his life for the people, Jesus offered up his life for the world. While King David paid a cost for some land, Jesus paid with the ultimate cost, his life. While King David sacrificed burnt offerings for sin, Jesus sacrificed himself for sin. David and the Israelites also point to us. As sinners, we too deserve the Lord's anger. 
David couldn't pay for sin with his death, and neither can we. We need Jesus to die in our place. And Jesus' death was no mistake. He didn't get captured out of God's control. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said this, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfilment of what Isaiah said. It was the perfect way for a holy God to be brought back together with sinful humanity. But also what a terrible way for God to achieve his purposes, to sacrifice his own son. Yet God loved us so much that he permitted this pain so that we could see the pattern of his grace. The Lord God used the terrible curse of crucifixion to bring about the salvation of the world. The Lord God was in control. The New Testament scriptures explain God's sovereignty, how he is in control, like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus' death was worked by God so that the salvation of the world could be made possible. God permitted that pain so that we could see the pattern of his grace. We saw in our first scene today, when David undertook the census, that he thought he was in control. I wonder whether we're like David in that regard, that we think we have control over things. We have control over our cars, don't we, for instance? In a lot of ways, we do. We can pump up our tyres, we can change the oil, but can we always control when our cars break down? I don't think so. Like David, we do have some responsibility in our actions, but not over everything. Our passage today shows that the Lord is sovereign over all things. God is in control, not me, not you. We're tempted to think we're in control of the little things, but also the bigger things of life. We might think that we can deal with our sin ourselves by ignoring it or sweeping it under the carpet or comparing it to others. We might think that we can deal with God's anger ourselves by trying to make up for it, or by convincing ourselves it's not as bad as it seems, or by convincing ourselves that the Lord's anger doesn't exist. But does this actually work? No. Only God has the power to deal with our sin, and we need God to deal with it. We need God to deal with our sin in judgment. David, at his weakest, admitted that the best place to be was in the hands of the Lord. David trusted in God's sovereignty, and God's sovereignty was a good thing for David. It is the same for us. The best place to be is in the hands of the Lord. He is sovereign over all things, and through trusting in his son Jesus, giving up our control, we can be forgiven for our sin. And it is good that God is in control. We can trust God because of his judgment and mercy. Because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. 
as we are not the ones in control, we need to trust the one who is, the sovereign Lord God. This looks like dedicating your life to serving him, praying for his protection, depending on him for strength, thanking him for his good gifts, orientating your life according to his word, having faith in his promises. When we trust in the Lord, we don't need to worry about the things we don't have control over. When we trust that the Lord God is in control, we can accept what comes our way. If we are followers of King Jesus, God works for our good. The events in our story today enable David to grow, and events in our lives enable us to grow more like Jesus. Look back. Reflect. Can you see how God might have worked things in your life for good? Has there been pain that God permitted so that you might see the pattern of his grace? It may take us a while to see how God is working things for good. But when you can accept that the Lord God is in control, you'll come to see that he works all things for the good of those who love him. Over the last year or so, the coronavirus pandemic has deeply affected people around the globe. Many of us have felt powerless. We've been confronted with how little we are in control. But could it be that through the tragedy and the pain that God is working things for good? It doesn't mean that things haven't been uncomfortable and painful. Yet haven't we begun to see a pattern of grace in all of that? Many people in our country are now closer with their neighbours because they needed to look out for one another in lockdown. In lots of places, underappreciated workers are being applauded for their perseverance. Over Easter, I went to a wedding of two people that met just before lockdown and got together during that time. These good news items do not overshadow or minimise the pain and tragedy that came with the pandemic, but they do give us hope that the Sovereign Lord is working his good purposes. Will you trust that the Lord God is in control. Millie's going to lead us in prayer. Thanks, Reuben. Um, I'm going to pray again the first paragraph that I prayed in our earlier prayer. Um, because it wasn't very clear, and I feel like it needed to be clearer. So you're not having deja vu or anything. Um, We're praying it again, so please join me in this short prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for documenting the stories of Israel and King David in 2 Samuel so that we can learn from their experience and see the unrelenting cycle of your people, a cycle of blessing, rejection, repentance, and redemption as we continue to choose ourselves over you and yet you continue to show us love and mercy. We're so sorry for the things we do that attempt to widen the divide between us and you, particularly when we think we're in control. Please forgive us for these things and help us to change as we grapple with our selfishness and your mercy. We ask that whatever this cycle looks like in our lives, that you would be with us and we would remember all you have done for us through Jesus' death and resurrection to reconcile us to you. 
Please use your spirit to turn our hearts to you, Lord, and help us to put you first as our saviour and God and trust in you and your control over our lives. Amen.